I, I told a couple people this yesterday, this is a bit of a spicy one. <laughs> so I hope I have friends at the end of this, but I'm going to, listen, I, I got to be true to the word, right? You got to be true to the word. So we, we are officially this morning halfway through the book of 2 Timothy. Hard to believe. Um, by now, you should have picked up on some common threads throughout this series, uh, through Paul's final challenge to Timothy. Uh, One of those threads is that the truth demands a certain response out of us. Amen? It calls us to certain behaviors. Secondly, we learned that we need to persevere in our service to Jesus. The Christian life is not a bed of roses, some people have that mistaken assumption. Uh, we laugh when we hear that, that someone calls Christianity a crutch for those who are mentally uh, weak and emotionally weak. I got news for you. There's nothing of a crutch about Christianity. It's a hard life at times, but God is faithful to us. God is good, and he gets us through. And third... We need to be careful to balance our convictions with grace. We learned that last week, right? Last week we said that balancing convictions and grace means picking our battles wisely, first of all, by knowing what's important to fight for and what isn't. We also learned that balancing convictions and grace means communicating the truth well, understanding it and articulating it. And finally, we learned that balancing convictions and grace means living out the truth, especially by the way that we love our opponents. So important. Now, this week, we're starting chapter three, which has a lot to say about the signs of the times. Signs are important, right? They give us important information. Some signs are meant even to warn us about something. But I'm going to show you this morning some warning signs that are just a bit ridiculous. This this morning, I'm going to give you ridiculous warning labels. Maybe. There it is. Ridiculous warning labels. These are all real, by the way. The first one, on a laundromat washing machine. Do not put any person in this washer. Oh, you got to be kidding me. On a bottle of drain opener, before using, read directions, cautions, and warning carefully. If you do not understand or cannot read directions, cautions, and warnings, do not use this product. I'm not sure how that works. Some of you, that's going to take a second to sink in. On a fuel tank cap, warning, never use a lit match or open flame to check fuel level. (laughs) On a Chipotle truck, notice drivers do not carry burritos. (laughs) I like that one. On a lottery ticket, do not iron. (laughs) Who irons their lottery tickets? I don't, I don't know. On a wheelbarrow, caution, not intended for highway use. (laughs) That would be a sight to see, cruising down the highway in my wheelbarrow. On a baby stroller. Caution, remove child before folding stroller. (laughs) If you you need that warning label, maybe you shouldn't be a parent. Just saying. 
on a bottle of dog medication. Warning, may cause drowsiness. Use care when operating a vehicle. <laughs> That'd be another sight to see going down the highway, right? On an electric drill. Caution, this product not intended for use as a dental drill. <laughs> oh. On a thermometer, warning, once used rectally, the thermometer should not be used orally. Oh, does it even need to be said? <laughs> and finally, on Apple's website for the iPod Shuffle, which is no longer made, warning, do not eat iPod Shuffle. <laughs> Why? <laughs> who would do this? <laughs> I don't know who to be more concerned for here, the people who wrote these or the people who they're intended for. <laughs> but all kidding aside, warning signs are important. They're usually there for a reason. Uh, as some of you know, I used to work about, oh, 10 years ago now, I used to work in a fabrication shop where I ran a giant circular saw, and I sawed steel grating all day long. And, and next to the saw, there was a sign that was very, very clear. It said, turn off breaker before servicing machinery. Turn off the breaker before servicing the saw, right? Well, as is sometimes the case, when you're in a hurry, you tend to take shortcuts. Sometimes my coworker and I, we would just lock the cover on the power switch, but we wouldn't flip the breaker on the wall. Now, somewhere an OSHA inspector's head just exploded <laughs> as I'm saying this. One day, it was time to change the saw blade, and we turned off the saw, and I, and I padlocked the power switch like we normally did, but I didn't turn off the breaker. Then I took my giant wrench, I had a giant wrench, like this long, right? And I unscrewed the nut that held that saw blade in place. I grabbed the blade, I pulled it off of the spindle, and I turned like this. When suddenly I heard, and the machine turned on all by itself literally seconds after I had removed the blade. I'd never seen my coworker's eyes get so big in all my life. He went. Now, I hate to think what would have happened if my hands had been on that blade as I was taking it off and it had turned on. As it turns out, some of the metal shavings from that saw had gotten into where the power switch was and completed the circuit and it turned on by itself because of it. And that, my friends, is why there was a warning sign that said to turn off the breaker. Turn off the power. Again, warning signs are important. To ignore a warning sign is to invite disaster. And it, here in today's passage, Paul's going to give us some really important warning signs to look out for. You're going to remember uh, last week, Paul said that we needed to balance our convictions with grace. Our first goal in fighting for the truth should always be to win people to the gospel, to lead them to repentance. That's why we said we speak the truth in love, because we want people to come to the cross, amen? But what do you do when people dig in their heels? What do you do when they treat the truth with contempt? Does that sound like anyone in our world today? 
I can think of a few. Let's see what Paul has to say about it. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to open up to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to start with verse 1 today. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. Now, keeping in mind everything Paul has already talked about, all right, he says this, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Now, on one hand, this is, a, this is a pretty straightforward passage. In fact, Paul only gives two commands here over the course of nine verses. Do you hear that? I only have a two-point sermon today. Woo! Too bad it doesn't mean it's going to be any shorter. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the first command is in verse 1, where Paul says, Mark this. Paul's saying, know this. Understand this. Recognize this. But recognize what? The first thing, understanding the times, number one, means recognizing the signs of false teaching. Recognizing the signs of false teaching. Paul gives us a, a list here of troublemakers that we should be watching out for. You remember last week we said that the number one sign of a false teacher is that they lead others into sinful and destructive behavior rather than into godliness. When you deny the truth, when you twist the gospel, when you twist the Bible, this is the kind of fruit that you bear in your life. Those who willfully oppose the truth produce a very specific kind of fruit in their lives, and they cause other people to do the same. So in that sense, this passage is actually pretty easy to understand. But I want us to understand what these terms mean. So we're going to break it down. We're going to start in verse 1 here. First of all, Paul says that there will be terrible times in the last days. Now, we really get ourselves twisted up in knots, I think, over those words, the last days. Our minds immediately go to prophecies and the book of Revelation and Armageddon and this and that. But here's the thing. While that is a part of what we call the last days, it's also a lot simpler than that. Most people don't understand that we are 
already in the last days. And are you ready for this? We've been in the last days for the last 2,000 years. How do I know this? If you have a Bible, you could flip over to Acts chapter 2 very quickly. Acts chapter 2 in verse 16. Now, the Holy Spirit, you might recall, the Holy Spirit had just come. It was the day of Pentecost, right? Uh, the, the disciples were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Tongues of fire appeared over their heads. They began to speak in other tongues. Uh, the foreigners who were in town at the time heard them and heard them speaking in their own languages. Pretty miraculous, amazing stuff. And Peter stands up to explain to the crowd what in the world is going on. In verse 16, he says to the crowd, hey, this is what the prophet Joel prophesied about. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Did you catch that? The last days began when the Holy Spirit arrived. Everything from that moment until Jesus comes again is the last days. We're living it right now. Now, what most people refer to when they talk about the last days is really the end of the end. That's what most people are thinking of, right? Things like the rapture of the church, the great tribulation, the antichrist. But many times when the Bible talks about the last days, it's talking about this whole era from the start of the church to Jesus' second coming. It's the last era of history before Jesus comes back. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I think we're actually pretty close to the end of the end. But even if Jesus waits another hundred years, these words still apply to us. So Paul tells us, since we're living in the last days, these are the signs, these are the symptoms of false teachers and false teaching, their behavior and the behavior of their followers. First, he says, they will be lovers of themselves. Now, when Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself, this isn't what he meant, okay? This isn't about caring for your body or your long-term well-being. Paul's talking about making an idol of yourself, putting yourself in God's place, making yourself the highest value, putting your whims, your wishes, your desires above anyone and everything. That was the nature of the very first sin in the Garden of Eden. You know that, right? The desire to become like God. It was idolatry. It was misplaced love. Loving something that you shouldn't have over everything else, including God. And every other sin that Paul's going to list here flows out of that very first sin. So verse 2, Paul says, they'll be lovers of money. Lovers of money. Have you noticed that some of the biggest scandals in the church over the years have revolved around greed? It's true. It's shameful, but it's true. So-called pastors, evangelists, dipping into the church's tithes and offerings to buy themselves a new Mercedes or a mansion or a $54 million private jet so they can do ministry. Right? That was a thing a couple of years ago. I won't mention the name. Right? When you're a lover of yourself, God's money is no longer off limits to you. You justify the misappropriation of tithes and offerings to satisfy your own desires. Dangerous stuff when you play with God's money. 
Paul says they'll be boastful, proud. False teachers have a swagger about them. They're very charismatic usually. Right? They have no shame. They're happy to flaunt their sin. 20 years ago, uh, there was a music video by Christina Aguilera called Beautiful. Uh, the chorus of that song goes, I am beautiful no matter what they say. Words can't bring me down. I am beautiful in every single way. Yes, words can't bring me down. Sounds nice, right? Problem is, if you watch the video, it shows people engaging in sexual behavior that is biblically problematic. Okay? It wasn't a song about self-esteem. It, was a, it wasn't a song about how I am beautiful, which, by the way, being made in the image of God does make you beautiful. But that's not what it was saying. What it was saying was, look at my sin. My sin is beautiful. And that's what false teachers do. When they teach something contrary to God's word, they flaunt it. They're proud of it. Paul also says uh, that false teachers are abusive. Now, in Greek, the, the word here is blasphemoi. Blasphemoi. It's where we get the word blasphemy. Okay? Normally, we think of blasphemy as saying evil things about God. Uh, but here, Paul's referring to those who say evil things about others. If you try to correct a false teacher, what do they do? They become verbally abusive towards you. You're the one in the wrong. You're the wicked one. In Matthew uh, chapter 7, verse 6, when Jesus says, Do not give dogs what is holy or throw your pearls before pigs. Otherwise, they'll trample them underfoot and turn and tear you to pieces. That's what he's talking about. False teachers are happy to tear you apart if you try to counter them with the truth. Paul says they're disobedient to parents. This is important because how you respond to your parents reflects how you respond to God, your heavenly Father, and to authority in general. Have you ever noticed that there is a deep disrespect nowadays towards parents? Turn on any sitcom. Usually the dad looks like a fool, right? Intentionally so. They make it that way. Parental rights are being eroded at an alarming rate. Right? Parents who try to instill their values in their children are being labeled radical and extremist. And it's showing up in how the younger generations treat the older generations. New, the new thing that millennials, and you know, we might chuckle about it, but I feel like it's, it's actually a serious thing. The new thing that millennials and Gen Z say to their grandparents when they disagree with them is, okay, boomer, as in baby boomer, right? Okay, boomer, you're old, you're stupid, you have no idea what you're talking about. It's a way of dismissing older wisdom. Now, that's not to say that parents and grandparents are infallible. They're not. All right, I've, I've seen it in, in my own life. They're not. But some of the loudest voices in our society right now are promoting a profound disrespect towards our elders. It's a problem. Paul says they're ungrateful, unholy, 
without love. These, these three are reversals of normal Christian virtues, thankfulness, holiness, and love. Pretty self-explanatory. False teachers feel like they owe no one anything. They're happy to indulge in what the world has to offer rather than setting themselves apart for God's use. And they're hateful, which ties into the next description. They're unforgiving, unforgiving. In Greek, the word here is aspondoi. It literally means unwilling to negotiate. In other words, you can't satisfy them. You can't appease them. Nothing you say will appease them. Their only desire is to destroy those who oppose them. There is no truce with them. False teachers are slanderous. Now, this is an interesting one. The word in Greek for this is diaboloi, diaboloi. It's where we get the word diabolical. You ever heard the Spanish word diablo? What does it mean? The devil. <laughs> All right. What does the devil do? He accuses. He slanders. He's happy to destroy a person's reputation. Have you noticed any trends in our culture where this is the case? I want you to know I'm building a case for what I think is currently the most dangerous false teaching in our society, but I'm not quite there yet, so hang in there. Right. Next, Paul says that false teachers are without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good. They're ruled by their own passions and their own desires, not by the Holy Spirit. Treacherous, the word here could literally be translated traitors. These people have no allegiance to anyone but themselves. They'll gladly stab you in the back if it suits them. They're rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Again, false teachers put themselves in the center of everything. They feel that everything orbits around them, their needs, their desires, now, here's where it gets interesting. Paul's been building this entire list to the next few words. He sums up false teachers by saying they are people having a form of godliness, but denying its power. They have pseudo-godliness. And folks, this is what makes false teaching false there are lots of people in this world that live contrary to what the Bible teaches. It's what we call sin, right? But that doesn't necessarily make them false teachers. The ones that are truly dangerous are the ones that claim that they are following Scripture. Did you hear that? False teaching is dangerous because it claims to have the support of the Bible. It's wrapping a lie in a veneer of the truth. Sometimes false teaching is subtle. Sometimes it just twists a word here and there. It excuses little things, which eventually turn into bigger things. But sometimes false teaching is in your face. And this is where I said I was going a moment ago. There are lots of false teachings that, that I could pick on. There's plenty of them out there. There's no shortage, believe me. <laughs> you, you probably have one in mind as I'm talking right now. But I believe that there's one in particular that poses 
the greatest threat to the church right now. These are teachings that fly directly in the face of, of the gospel, of scripture, but they claim many times to have the Bible's support. Now, before I tackle this, a word of warning. I told you this was a spicy one this morning. I try, I, I try very, very hard to stay non-political in this pulpit, and I'm going to do my best to tread that line today, but it's hard. But because Scripture speaks to every human being, left, right, and center, right, all of us, regardless of political party, have fallen short of the glory of God. Amen? The Bible speaks to all of us. Right? And, and whatever your political persuasion, there are areas where you have blind spots and you need to change. So I'll just preface what I'm going to say with that. Okay? But here's the thing. The Bible speaks to every aspect of life. Every aspect. And political ideologies more than ever have invaded every aspect of our lives. And so, guess what? There's going to be conflict between the two. Our biblical convictions are going to find themselves at, odd, at odds with politics. Do you see where I'm going? Okay. Now, some politicians claim that there's a divide between the church and the state, and that the Bible has no place in politics. But folks, here's what they do. The government encroaches further and further and further into our lives. And when we push back and say that our faith forbids us from supporting certain ideologies, they tell us instead that our religion has no place in the public square. That's what ends up happening. It's insidious. The whole reason, as a side note for the establishment clause in the First Amendment, was not so that religion would stay out of government, but so that government would stay out of religion. I say that unapologetically this morning. Okay? Now, this is the thing, uh, we prayed about this, uh, what was it, a, a month and a half, two months ago? This is what Canada is dealing with right now, where pastors, more and more, their right to speak biblical truth, clearly spelled out in the Bible, is being removed from them. And if they do it, they're in danger of prosecution. Unfortunately, even here, we have come to a place where our government tries to dictate to the church what is moral and what is not. A, uh, a good pastor friend of mine, if he's watching this, he knows who he is. He calls uh, the moralizing that segments of our government is doing, he calls it progressive fundamentalism. Progressive fundamentalism. Uh, in the early 80s, we had Christian fundamentalists. We had the Jerry Falwells, right, and the moral majority who tried to influence politics so that our laws reflected biblical values. Some of you, some of my older adults in here probably remember that, okay? And, and their intentions might have been good, but you can't legislate good into people's hearts, amen? It's impossible, right? Laws don't transform people. Only Jesus can do that. And as a result, there was some serious backlash. You'll see this oftentimes. The pendulum swings one way for a while, and then it comes back hard the other way. There was backlash to that. Today, the pendulum has swung the other way. Now, now we have what, what 
I call progressive fundamentalism. It has that same sort of religious zeal to it, but with values that run contrary to clear biblical teaching. And yet, progressive fundamentalists loudly proclaim that the Bible supports them. Hence the reason I call it false teaching. Okay? You still following me? Progressive fundamentalism has invaded thousands of churches across America. In fact, it's in most of the mainline denominations at this point. Progressive fundamentalists believe a few different things usually. And this is just a limited list. There's more. But one, they claim that human sexuality is diverse. Rather than being rooted in God's design in Genesis chapter 1, they say that human sexuality covers a broad spectrum. All right, that's where you get LGBTQ and on and on and on, right? They claim that male and female are just social constructs that we've made up over the years. They claim that numerous passages forbidding sex outside of heterosexual marriage, they claim that they're taken out of context. They claim that many of the relationships, close relationships that you see in the Bible were actually gay relationships. They claim that God isn't concerned about the sex that you're having as much as he's concerned about whether you love other people. Now, God's concerned about whether you love other people, but he's concerned about the other two. Okay? And they claim that loving your neighbor as yourself means letting them do whatever makes them happy, happy. Right? Never mind how destructive it is to themselves, to their family, to their community. And they cherry pick certain verses to make their point while ignoring the dozens of verses that contradict them. They teach that you're inherently bigoted depending on what the color of your skin is or the community that you were born in rather than because of the content of your heart. They cherry pick scriptures that emphasize justice for the poor and the oppressed, which is a good thing, right? We most certainly should be fighting for justice for those who are oppressed, for those who are poor, for those who are less fortunate than us, who don't have a voice. Yes, nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. But then they use those same verses to legitimize the oppression of others, creating a new kind of injustice, but all in the name of justice. They teach that children are guilty for the sins of their parents and their grandparents, that they must atone for the sins of their ancestors. No one excuses those sins, but listen, God said the very opposite in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. He said, the one who sins is the one who will die. The child does not share the guilt of the parent. Straight out of scripture, folks. Your sins are your own and not someone else's. Now, that doesn't mean that when you see something wrong going on, that you shouldn't approach it and try to do something about it. You most certainly should. But the sins of your ancestors are not your sins. They were their own. They teach that God is okay with the extermination of millions of unborn children in the womb. They teach that the Bible is silent on the issue of abortion. It's not. But that's what they claim. They say that God is more concerned about the future well-being of the mother than, sh than he is about the fetus in the womb. They claim that abortion provides justice and hope for mothers whose lives would otherwise be destroyed by the responsibilities of motherhood. That's why you had a multi-denominational group of pastors 
in 2018 who held an event where they prayed a blessing over the Planned Parenthood Center in their community. Spicy enough yet? I could go on. In fact, we could do a whole series about the ways that progressive fundamentalism has twisted the scriptures to support its views. But there are three common threads in progressive fundamentalism. First of all, it uses scripture taken wildly out of context to support its claims. Second, it uses terms that we would all approve of, like love and justice and grace, and it repackages them to support behaviors that God never intended, that were considered wrong until today. Third, it promotes a salvation by works mentality. You earn God's approval by working toward their concept of justice. But it ignores the fact that salvation is by faith in Jesus alone. And the only thing that can fix our world is not more social programs, but the power of the blood that was shed on the cross for you and for me. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't work hard to alleviate suffering when we see it. Absolutely we should. I cannot make that clear enough. We have a responsibility to alleviate suffering when we can. But it means that our real hope is not in any of those things. Our real hope is in the power of Jesus to transform lives. Folks, these teachings have invaded thousands of churches from the Methodists to the Presbyterians to the Lutherans, even Baptists, Charismatics, and Pentecostals in some places. It's why we're seeing denominations split left and right in the news. Not only that, it's in our schools, it's in our universities, it's in our media, it's in our entertainment. It's invading our homes. Meanwhile, far too many Christians have been asleep at the wheel. That's why Paul says at the end of verse 5, have nothing to do with such people. And that leads us to Paul's second point. Number two, understanding the times means standing firm against false teaching. Look what Paul says next. He says, false teachers are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, I know what some of you ladies are thinking. What gives? <laughs> Why is Paul picking on the women? First of all, remember that God's word to us was first of all God's word to them, okay? To their specific situation in history. In Timothy's situation, he was the pastor of the church in Ephesus. This was one of the problems that he was dealing with there. In Ephesus, there were a group of women who had allowed false teachers and false teaching to weasel their way into their homes and to cause all sorts of problems. That was their specific situation, okay? Paul isn't suggesting that women are inherently gullible or dumb. Please understand that. That's not what he's saying. But in Timothy's case, there were women in the church who were immature in their faith, who welcomed every new fad, every new idea, and they let it dictate their lives. But men, you are not off the hook either here. 
right? Sometimes what isn't said is just as instructive as what is said. Paul mentions women letting destructive teaching into their house. But here's a question. Where were the men? Where were they? Why was the husband, the dad, not there to serve as a gatekeeper for his home? Man, I'm talking to you this morning, and and please hear me. I I say this in grace because I'm not perfect myself. Lord knows I'm not perfect, right? But too often we have left our spouses to do all the work of raising our families. We take this attitude, I'll be the provider, and I'll let my wife take care of raising the kids. Wrong. Men, yes, you should provide for your families, absolutely, but you also serve as their protector, not just physically, but spiritually as well. It's your job, along with your wife, to shepherd your family well. Do not abdicate your responsibility. Dads and moms, you should be praying with your kids regularly. You should. You should be reading the Bible with them and explaining it to them. And you should be leading by example, showing them what it means to live for Jesus. And finally, Paul closes out this section by talking about two guys named Jonas and Jambres. If you're wondering who who they are, you're not alone. Um, They're not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. We only know them from Jewish tradition. Jewish tradition says that when Moses stood before Pharaoh and told him to let the Israelites go, these guys were Pharaoh's personal magicians who stood at his side. And you might remember the story. Moses was standing before Pharaoh, and he laid his staff on the ground like God had instructed him to do, and it miraculously turned into a serpent. But these two magicians, who we can assume were demonically inspired, did the same thing with their staffs to prove that their gods had the real power. Later on, God used Moses to turn the Nile River to blood. And these magicians did the same thing by turning water into blood. Their whole purpose was to oppose God's plan, to convince Pharaoh that Moses' words were lies. That's what false teachers do. They call the truth lies, and they call lies the truth. Paul says they have depraved minds. They're entrenched in their ways. They can't be reasoned with. But do you remember what happened next in that story? God used Moses to call down more and more plagues in judgment on Egypt, and Jonas and Jambrace couldn't duplicate it anymore. It was too big. They were eventually exposed for the frauds that they were. And folks, here's the good news. False teaching is dangerous, no question, but it has a shelf life. It does not win the day. I'm going to ask Joel to come on back up this morning. Folks, truth eventually wins out. get exposed. But in the meantime, we have to stand firm. We can't just passively sit by while false teaching runs rampant. 
When false teachers claim God's support for their lies, we can't be quiet. We have to respond. Now, this doesn't mean that we should be angry. It doesn't mean we should be violent. Two wrongs don't make a right. Okay? It doesn't mean we should be arrogant. It doesn't mean we should be condescending. I see that way too often. People who, who try to stand up for the truth and end up just making a fool of themselves by their behavior. Right? Remember last week, we must balance convictions with grace. But we must speak what we know to be true regardless of the consequences. In closing, do you remember uh, who Galileo was? You guys remember Galileo? Right? He was, he was a, in the 1600s. He was a, a scientist, um, one of the most famous scientists in history. In the 1600s, the Catholic Church taught that the sun actually revolved around the earth. It was called geocentrism. They taught this based on their own faulty interpretation of the Bible. But Galileo, along with uh, Copernicus, who you also might have heard of, he was one of the first scientists to propose heliocentrism, the idea that the earth revolves around the sun. And when Galileo presented his evidence, the church turned against him and labeled him a heretic. <laughs> and he spent the rest of his life under the judgment of the Catholic church who forbade him from speaking about the issue. Galileo died in 1642 at the age of 77, never seeing his vindication. But in 1758, over a hundred years after his death, the church reversed their position and said he was right all along. What's the lesson here? Folks, the truth always wins out. The waiting can be frustrating. <laughs> but don't give up on it just because it's convenient. Don't give up on it just because that's comfortable to do. Now more than ever, the truth matters. Amen? As Paul warns us, understanding the times means recognizing the signs of false teaching and standing firm against it. Let's pray this morning. Lord, this morning, this is, this is a tough message to swallow. And we have to be careful, Lord, because sometimes when we speak the truth, we do. We, we run the risk of coming off as arrogant or condescending. And Lord, we know that that's not your desire for us. And yet we also know that the truth is offensive. The truth steps on people's toes. And when we speak the truth, no matter how lovingly we speak it, Sometimes we get backlash. So, Lord, I pray for each person in this room who is committed to the truth, who's committed to Scripture, God's infallible Word. I pray that you would give them courage to speak it. I pray that you would give them courage to proclaim it. And when opposition comes, you'd give them the grace to share it in spite of what may come their way. Father, I pray that as we go from this place, and we will, we'll run into people who claim the very opposite of what the Bible teaches. But Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts of love and compassion for those who maybe haven't entrenched themselves 
for those who maybe aren't convinced that, yeah, this is what I'm saying is correct. Lord, I pray you would help us to show them grace and that the Holy Spirit would soften their heart. Lord, that's the only way the truth wins out is when your Holy Spirit does its work in the lives of people. So we ask for that. Lord, give us courage, give us boldness as we leave this place. And we pray it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And everyone said, amen, amen. Thank you for coming. God bless you as you go. We will continue our series next week.